the U.S. strikes a car in Baghdad with a drone and kills a leader of Qatayab Hezbollah. It shows the vehicle engulfed in flames on a Baghdad highway. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments about whether or not Donald Trump can be excluded from the Colorado presidential election ballot. A group of voters asked for and succeeded in getting Trump disqualified from Colorado's presidential primary ballot. And with the Super Bowl coming up this weekend, Taylor Swift merchandise is flying off the shelves in Kansas City. Sweatshirts that play off her song titles, Swift and Kelsey prayer candles, a cake with a Chiefs logo that burns away to show a drawing of Swift in a Chiefs uniform. Today is Thursday, February 8th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. The U.S. military says a U.S. drone strike blew up a car in the Iraqi capital Wednesday night, killing a high-ranking commander of the powerful Kataib Hezbollah militia, who is responsible for directly planning and participating in attacks on American troops in the region. Joining us now to fill in the details is VOA's Pentagon correspondent, Carla Babb. So, Carla, what do we know so far? So, yes, yeah, so, um, VOA was actually the first to get confirmation that the U.S. was involved in this strike. It was a unilateral strike conducted by U.S. forces against a major commander for Qatayib Hezbollah. Qatayib Hezbollah is the Iranian-backed militant group that has been responsible for striking U.S. forces in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. And so this was a big, uh, a big retaliation for the United States to do uh, a very high-value target driving around in Baghdad, which, you know, it, it brings back memories of when Qasem Soleimani, the head of Iran's elite Quds Force, was killed in an airstrike in early 2020. It's it's that kind of level uh, of, of an attack. But this was a clear response, officials say, um, to all of these attacks. Yeah. So like a couple of things. A, it happens in Baghdad, in Iraq, which is an ally. And like what it was like eight o'clock at night, right? So people are out, they're having dinner, they're they're in the city, right? That's right. In fact, so you can see video that was shared on social media. It shows the vehicle engulfed in flames on a Baghdad highway. You can tell by everything around it that that is indeed Baghdad. We were also able to see uh, someone was posting on social media identifying the commander, confirming what I had reported earlier in the day. The commander, his name is Wassam Mohammed al-Saidi, and you could actually see his Iraqi uh, identification card uh, pulled, allegedly pulled from the rubble. VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb. After holding talks with visiting U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected as delusional a counterproposal by Hamas to a hostage deal brokered by the United States, Qatar, and Egypt. VOA's senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sane reports from the State Department. Wednesday marked four months since the October 7th cross-border attacks by Hamas that killed 1,200 people in Israel and saw the U.S.-designated terrorist group taking some 240 people hostage. About 135 hostages are still unaccounted for. Ceremonies were held in cities around the world, including Paris. 
The top U.S. diplomat, Antony Blinken, is in the Middle East to push for the release of the hostages, including six Americans, and an extended pause in the fighting to get more humanitarian aid to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu dismissed a proposal by Hamas, which reportedly called for the withdrawal of all Israeli forces from Gaza. Today, I told Secretary of State Blinken that after defeating Hamas, we will make sure that Gaza be demilitarized for good. The history already proved that there is only one force that can promise such a thing, the state of Israel through the IDF and our security forces. At a separate press conference late Wednesday, Blinken had this to say about the Hamas counteroffer. While there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. In Tel Aviv, a group of freed Israeli hostages appealed to Netanyahu to push for a hostage deal. Again, I am turning to you, Mr. Netanyahu. Everything is in your hands. You are the one that can. And I am very scared, very afraid, that if you continue in this line of bringing down Hamas, there won't be any hostages to free anymore. In his talks with Israeli officials, Blinken said that the death toll of Palestinians in Gaza is still far too high and that any military operation against Hamas needs to put the safety of civilians first and foremost. According to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health in Gaza, at least 27,478 Palestinians have been killed in the Gaza Strip since October the 7th. About 70% of those killed are reported to be women and children. More than 66,800 Palestinians have reportedly been injured. Blinken also held talks in Ramallah in the West Bank with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Blinken will hold more talks in Israel on Thursday and plans to meet with the families of hostages held by Hamas. Cindy Sain, VOA News. The State Department. The U.S. Senate considered a $95 billion foreign aid bill Wednesday after Senate Republicans earlier blocked a $118 billion bipartisan agreement on border security and aid to Ukraine and Israel. More now from Reuters correspondent Freddie Joyner. On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 50. A $118 billion bipartisan package to bolster border security was officially blocked by Senate Republicans on Wednesday. The deal, which took months to negotiate, would not have just tightened immigration laws, but also would have helped Ukraine fight a Russian invasion and bolster Israel in its war with Hamas. But aid for the latter two still have a chance to be approved separately. Three weeks ago, everyone wanted to solve the border crisis. Yesterday, no one did. For months, Republicans have insisted that any additional aid to the two U.S. allies must also address the high numbers of migrants arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, a top voter concern. But many Republicans promptly rejected the package when it was released on Sunday, even though it contained many of their priorities. Only four of the Senate's 49 Republicans voted for the bill Wednesday. 
former President Donald Trump has pressured Republican lawmakers to reject any compromise as he campaigns to defeat Democratic President Joe Biden in the November election. Concerns over immigration have become a top issue in this year's election campaign, and Biden on Tuesday blamed Trump for the deal's collapse. So for the last 24 hours, he's done nothing, I'm told, but reach out to Republicans in the House and the Senate and threaten them and try to intimidate them to vote against this proposal. And it looks like they're caving. Frankly, they owe it to the American people to show some spine and do what they know to be right. The bill's defeat still leaves open the possibility that Congress could provide much-needed aid to Ukraine and Israel. With the Senate set to vote on a $96 billion package that strips out the immigration provisions but leaves the foreign aid intact. But that aid package would face uncertain prospects in the House of Representatives as Republicans who control that chamber have balked at further support for Ukraine. Reuters correspondent Freddie Joyner. We're following these other stories from around the world. More than a hundred websites disguised as local news outlets in Europe, Asia, and Latin America are pushing pro-China content in a widespread influence campaign linked to a Beijing public relations firm. The digital watchdog Citizen Lab found that the effort is spread over websites in 30 countries and the propaganda material is interspersed with news aggregated from local news outlets and Chinese state media. Residents say one of Eastern Congo's most active rebel groups is attacking a community considered the last line of defense before the region's largest city of Goma. The M23 rebels claim they have no intention to seize Goma again, but warn that attacks targeting its forces will be dealt with at their source. The group rose to prominence a decade ago by seizing Goma. Microsoft-backed OpenAI is working on a type of agent software to automate complex tasks by taking over a user's device. That information reported on Wednesday, citing a person with knowledge on the matter. The agent software will handle web-based tasks, like gathering public data on companies, creating itineraries, or booking flight tickets, according to the report. The U.S. Supreme Court hears oral arguments Thursday about whether likely Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump is eligible for the office and must be excluded from the state's ballots because of his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, which is seen as a violation of a provision in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The clause in the Constitution prevents people who are engaged in insurrection from holding office. Joining us now to talk about this is Thomas Wolfe, Director of Democracy Initiatives at the Brennan Center at New York University. So, how did this case come about? A group of voters um, asked for and succeeded in getting Trump disqualified from Colorado's presidential primary ballot um, for violating the 14th Amendment, which prevents um, former federal office holders from holding office again if they've engaged uh, in an insurrection. So, as I understand it, this case is asking the Supreme Court to decide whether or not the state of Colorado um, has the authority to take Trump off 
its own presidential ballot. Right. Exactly. Um, so if the Supreme Court rules in favor of Trump uh, in the case that the court is hearing on Thursday, Trump would get put back on the presidential primary ballot in Colorado. If the Supreme Court rules for the voters in this case, then Trump would not be eligible to appear on that presidential primary ballot uh, in Colorado. So it's speaking to one state. So talk to me about the seesaw arguments that are made for states' rights and then against states' rights, because I don't understand how they fall down, you know, um, to, to the people that aren't from outside the United States who aren't familiar with the election process in this country completely. There isn't one presidential election on election day. There's 50 elections. Each state runs their own primary election and each state runs their own general election. And then those results are combined and the winner of the presidential race is decided. So this yes. is a state's rights issue, is it not? Does the state have the right to say who's on their ballot? Well, there are a lot of different issues that are bundled up in Trump's Colorado appeal. So um, the, the underlying dispute in this case is essentially that the 14th Amendment says that people who have uh, been office holders, who have taken an oath to uphold the law, and who have engaged in an insurrection are not qualified uh, to be on the ballot. Now, Colorado, as a matter of its own state law, has processes for ensuring that people are qualified and processes for removing people from the ballots if they are not qualified. Uh, now, the D.C., uh, sorry, the in this case, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump was not qualified because he violated the terms of the 14th Amendment in engaging in uh, insurrection on January 6th. Um, when that case got taken up to the Supreme Court, there were a couple of federal law issues and a couple of state law issues that were raised. The federal law issues all revolve around how to interpret the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. What does it mean to be an officer? Uh, what does it mean to engage in insurrection? Does the disqualification extend to the president? Can uh, the president be disqualified if Congress hasn't created legislation to put the 14th Amendment into action? There's a separate set of questions here about whether the Colorado Supreme Court correctly interpreted Colorado's own law. That is a very dangerous uh, lane of inquiry for the U.S. Supreme Court to go down. Just last term, in June 2023, the Supreme Court rejected, in a case called Morby Harper, something called the Independent State Legislature Theory, which is this completely off-the-wall, very radical theory that when state legislatures make the rules for federal elections, they are not subject to any checks and balances um, at all. Uh, effectively, what Trump is trying to do in this case by raising these state law arguments is to pretend like Moore v. Harper never happened and tell the Supreme Court that it can go in and just wipe away the Colorado Supreme Court's interpretations of state law um, because that supposedly violates this theory. So Trump's... Uh, ignoring the current state of the law and trying to revive a very dangerous theory that's been sort of stumbling around American uh, elections like a zombie uh, for the last six to seven months. Thomas Wolfe, Director of Democracy Initiatives at the Brennan Center.
Pakistan is set to hold general elections on Thursday. A military-backed crackdown on former Prime Minister Imran Khan's party has cast doubts on the fairness of the polls. As VOA's Pakistan bureau chief Sarah Zaman reports, some worry elections may not bring the political stability needed to pull this nation of about 240 million people out of its deep economic crisis. More than 128 million Pakistanis are registered to vote in the February 8 general elections. Many are struggling to make ends meet. Rufsana Bibi, a mother of three, says she wants the next government to bring down back-breaking inflation. Prices are nearly 30% higher than a year ago. Slow economic growth and a crushing external debt burden have pushed millions into poverty. A $3 billion lifeline that the International Monetary Fund threw to Pakistan last July runs out in March. Ahmed Bilal Mehboob is the president of Pakistan Institute of Legislative Development and Transparency, or PILDAT, a Lahore-based think tank. Pakistan has faced problems, but not to this extent. We have almost uh, stopped short of bankruptcy. So therefore, it's very important that after, as a result of this election, a government should come which is able to handle the economic challenges. A Gallup opinion poll released this week shows 70% Pakistanis lack trust in elections. One of the country's most popular political figures, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, is disqualified from running for office. Just days before the polls, court sentenced the jail leader to years in prison for corruption, mishandling state secrets and illicit marriage. Khan rejects the charges as politically motivated. Deprived of its iconic election symbol, the bat, his Pakistan Tehreek-e Insaf Party, or PTI, has struggled to campaign freely in public and online. Much of its top leadership is either in jail or in hiding, as the party is facing a crackdown since Khan's supporters stormed military facilities last year in May to protest his arrest. Pildat's Mehboob worries elections may not bring much-needed political stability. A lot of people are supporting that party whether a government will be able to be formed and whether there will be some political stability or because of this reason that a party has been deprived of its symbol, there will be some protest, etc. after the election. Three-time former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif is the frontrunner. Known for launching mega-development projects, Sharif never completed a full term in office. Adil Rahmat Ali, a rickshaw driver, says he's still looking for the right candidate for his children's well-being. Whoever wins will walk a tightrope with Pakistan's military, the country's most powerful institution. Sara Zaman, VOA News, Lahore, Pakistan. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. As Sudan is about to enter its 10th month of conflict, UN agencies launched a $4.1 billion appeal Tuesday to provide urgent aid for 14.7 million people inside Sudan and 2.7 million people who've taken refuge in the five neighboring countries. The UN launch in Geneva got off to a poignant start with a video of Sudanese victims who recounted the terrible impact the wars had on their lives. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. Mena, a young Sudanese refugee in Egypt, said the war has robbed her and other children of their education. 
But how can we build the future in this situation? UN officials say Sudan's nearly 10-month-long conflict has fueled suffering of epic proportions. And yet, UN Emergency Relief Coordinator Martin Griffith says the international community has largely forgotten the country amid high-profile crises in Gaza, Ukraine, and elsewhere. But I don't think there's anywhere quite so tragic um, in the world today as Sudan. He says the expansion of fighting in Sudan has worsened the situation. Nearly 18 million people face acute hunger. Diseases, including cholera, measles, and malaria, are spreading, and few health facilities are functioning. The two officials who have jointly launched the Sudan and refugee response plans say the money requested will provide food and nutrition, shelter, clean water, and education for children. They say it also will help fight the scourge of gender-based violence and care for the survivors. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And finally, the Super Bowl is this Sunday, an American football game that is the pinnacle of sporting events in the United States. It usually generates an average TV viewership of about 100 million people in the U.S. and an estimated 30 to 50 million viewers around the world. But if you think I'm talking about football, if you think I'm talking about football, I am not. I just want to say this. Taylor Swift. As you may know, she is dating Travis Kelsey's, one of the players for the Kansas City Chiefs. That's one of the two teams playing in the Super Bowl this weekend. And Kansas City-themed Taylor Swift merchandise is flying off the shelves. Sweatshirts that play off her song titles, Swift and Kelsey prayer candles, a cake with a Chiefs logo that burns away to show a drawing of Swift in a Chiefs uniform, the locally made jewelry that Swift herself has worn to games. Katie Mabry Van Deeren, owner of Shop Local KC, says she gets asked all the time if it's fair to profit off Swift this way. If she is wearing these items that the people have made with her boyfriend's number on it, I feel like she would support it. I'm Archie Zaroleta. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. UN peacekeeping operations in Africa are facing unprecedented challenges today, including faltering host nation cooperation and consent and the presence of actors like the Wagner Group in conflict zones, said Michelle Sisson, Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs, in recent congressional testimony. So it's clear that we need to expand our multilateral toolkit for responding to security crises in Africa while simultaneously working to improve, pushing to improve UN peacekeeping. The UN Security Council recently adopted Resolution 2719, which provides a framework for the partial funding of African-led peace support operations with UNSS contributions, explained Assistant Secretary Sisson. We were very active in the negotiation of this resolution. We insisted that future African Union-led peace operations supported by UN assess contributions comply with UN human rights due diligence policy 
and are mandated to protect civilians and be authorized by and accountable to the UN Security Council. The complex crises across Africa demand new tools in addition to traditional UN peacekeeping operations, said Assistant Secretary Sisson. So we need tools that allow the international community to respond rapidly to threats against civilians, to prevent mass atrocities, counter violent extremists or terrorist groups, and stabilize a security situation to allow space for a political solution. African Union peace support operations may also serve as a counter to malign actors who seek to exploit security vacuums, an issue critically important to our U.S. national security. As the largest financial contributor to U.N. peacekeeping, the United States remains committed to defending American interests in Africa and working with its multilateral partners to tackle the global challenges of conflict, insecurity, and human rights violations by improving peacekeeping missions. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 